Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 198 of Dogcast Radio, in which we have two truly inspirational interviews. Later on, we'll be hearing from two members of a team that went to Morocco to help street dogs and cats. We've managed to treat 647 animals this trip. That's a combination of kind of surgical procedures and, and preventative treatment like flea and worm are on the street as well. We'll also have the Dogcast Radio News. Climate change is worrying for us all, but for one group of dogs it's threatening their very existence. And I'll be telling you about a dog toy which didn't meet with mischief's approval. This, along with all our other episodes, can be found on our website, dogcastradio.com. But before all that, I'm going to talk to Judy Fredono about her amazing dog, Surf Dog Ricochet. I interviewed Judy a while ago and was looking forward to catching up with them. So my first question was, how is Ricochet? Ricochet's doing well, getting a little grey in the face now, though. Um, She's ten and a half. Time kind of flew by. Oh, I know. Tell me about it. It does. It does. It goes so fast. But I mean, she's having a wonderful time, isn't she? And she's even even at 10 and a half, she's still having a wonderful time, isn't she? She is. She's she's slowing down a little bit, but not for squirrels or bunnies. (laughs) Um, She still has a passion for chasing anything that runs. Yeah. But um, yeah, but she's she's doing good. Now, talking about that that, li- that liking for sort of chasing anything that moves, well, any small that moves, that kind of, that penchant sort of helped shape her life, didn't it, actually? It did. When she was, my whole plan for Ricochet was for her to be a service dog for a person with a disability, but she had other plans. So um, she was a brilliant puppy, but somewhere around 14 to 16 weeks of age, she kind of shut down, didn't want to train anymore, wasn't interested. And that went on for probably a good year before she hopped on a surfboard and kind of showed me that that's what she's here to do. And she also started chasing birds. And so she really didn't fit the role of service dog. So I kind of had to make that realization and accept her for what she is and what she's on this earth to do. So yeah, yeah. ever since that day, I've kind of nurtured her natural abilities and, and what I believe her, her life purpose is. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's, that's what a good trainer and indeed a good owner, you know, does with an animal because you let them find their, you know, where they want to be in life. And I, I remember interviewing someone who's, who does um, a lot of heel work to music with her dogs, and she's got Bernese Mountain Dogs and Cavalier uh, King Charles Spaniels, so big dogs and small dogs. And all of them, she says, you know, I let them find their way. And one of her dogs, their passion in life is sitting on laps and giving love. And she said, and she's a, yes. gold, yeah, she's a gold medalist at that, and that's what she gets to do. Mm-hmm. And that's it, isn't it? Exactly. I believe that as well. I just think that most of us, don't get a dog for that reason. It's typically we get a dog for our own purpose Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. our own, you know, what we want. Like I wanted to train her as a service dog or someone else might want to train their dog to do agility um, or be a therapy dog or, you know, whatever our interests are. And we don't typically consider the dog. 
um, now that I've learned from Ricochet, that's the only way that I would interact with a dog anymore. And um, the new pup that we have, same thing. She kind of showed me what she is on this earth to do. So now I'm just a facilitator. I nurture (laughs) their natural abilities. And honestly, it's better than anything that I could have come up with. So listening to the dogs really benefits you tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. I always say every dog is a different adventure. Every dog you you share your life with is a different adventure. And it may not be the adventure you signed up for, but the the trick is to have the strength and the belief to go on that adventure, isn't it? So so tell me about your your new pup then. The new pup is Corey, and she is a Golden Lab mix. She will be two in September, but is quite immature, so she still seems like a young puppy. And um, actually, she was really petrified of our swimming pool. She didn't want to go in the pool. Hmm. Um, We tried for months to get her to go in. And finally, one of my neighbors, a teenager, was trying to get her to go in the pool. And she went underwater. And when Corey saw her go underwater, she got really nervous and kind of jumped in the pool trying to save her. So Corey was showing me that that's what she wanted to do. So um, I can't do water rescue, but that's kind of what she was showing me. So instead we created a program for Corey called canine assisted swimming. So she swims with kids that have disabilities or they're afraid of the water or something like that. Kids tend to trust dogs much faster than they do humans. So if there's a child that, uh, a swim instructors having difficulty with getting to the barriers. What we do is offer Corey services to be in the water with the child. And we've had incredible success with it. It's very quick and the child becomes more confident and can go back to their regular swimming lessons. So the barriers are broken very quickly. Um, and in addition to that, we actually did a fundraiser, and there's a, a organization in Italy that actually does water rescue. Their dogs work with the Coast Guard. They actually patrol the beaches, so they really do water rescue with their with their dogs. So we were able to do a fundraiser to bring them here to work with Corey, and they spent five days training her. And um, the swim instructor that we work with is Jody from um, Special Fishies. So we um, got additional training for her. So the program that we created is a really top-notch, well-credentialed program. So it's relatively new since Corey is young, but it's it's different, like Ricochet, Um, you know, these our dogs that kind of chose their life purpose. And it's something both of them, like there were no dogs surfing with kids with disabilities when Ricochet decided to do that. And now there are no dogs that I know of that are swimming with children for a specific purpose of breaking those barriers. So it's exciting to me, like you said, an adventure. It is for sure because when you follow them, there's just everything kind of falls into place and and pretty exciting things happen. I mean, 
the transformation between Ricochet and the kids she interacts with and Corey and those kids, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, I bet it is. And I bet actually as well, because, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been looking through your, your emails this evening and reminding myself about, you know, what, what your dogs do. And it's just amazing. And it's a, it's a funny old world at the moment. And your dogs are sort of the antidote to that. If you're feeling jaded... I mean, anybody listening to this, if you're feeling jaded and a bit kind of what is going on in the world and is there still kindness and love and compassion out there, there is, and your dogs just embody that. And I mean, I was looking tonight at the pictures of um, of the, the children in the water who need machines to breathe. I mean, can you, can you tell us about oh, that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those children have spinal muscular atrophy. So they, some of it, it's, in different stages and some of them are very extremely disabled some not as much but some of those kids have breathing tubes and every august we get together with the pharmaceutical company that makes um, one of the drugs for the for the disease and those children are able to get out on a surfboard with ricochet it's not surfing like we would normally do because these kids are very sick mm. um, and like I said, have trachs, so they can't get it wet. So it's a kind of a modified way of getting the kids on the board with ricochet, but they still get to experience being on a board with the dog. So for them, it's very exciting and it's just nice to know that we can do that and that their parents really want to give their children the same experiences that all kids get. Yes. So yeah. that's a pretty intense surf session because, it, you know, that kids are fragile and it takes a lot of expertise and teamwork to do that. Um, it's coming up this August. Mm. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's gorgeous. Those, those children, as you said, who don't get to do the things that most children do and they, they have to be treated so carefully and they don't get to just dash through the waves and have fun but again it's beautiful to see so many people come together and carry the surfboard with the child on it into the water and you know make in cocoon them from from any danger but exactly. give them yeah yeah oh it's beautiful <laughs> judy it's beautiful and but to see them have that fun oh it's gorgeous it's really just wonderful and you know as you say it's not just the children is it their families for them that must be such a wonderful time yeah because they're able to interact with other families that have the same challenges and it's a upbeat day of fun and lunch is served and um it's it's a really nice get together for everyone and the employees of the pharmaceutical company all come out and help so it's there's a lot of camaraderie and it's just yeah it's pretty incredible what can happen when you get a little creative and think outside the box yeah yeah definitely definitely um tell me about the the IMAX film that um Ricochet is going to be featured. Yeah. In. Yeah, there's an IMAX film called Superpower Dogs that will be premiering in March of 2019. And it's got about five different dogs in the film. Most of them are like search and rescue, water rescue, like our friends in Italy. 
um, that do the water rescue, their dogs are in it. Um, there's avalanche rescue dogs. There's these dogs in Kenya that sniff out poachers that are trying to kill elephants for their ivory. Mm. So most of the dogs that are featured are um, rescue. They rescue people in some fashion. And then there's Ricochet, and um, they kind of showcase her surfing. And actually what Ricochet does is rescue people emotionally. Yes, absolutely. So the film, I believe, is going to end with um, Ricochet and showing that what dogs are capable of from the perspective of healing people from, you know, um, emotional distress. So she works with a lot of service members in the military and veterans that have PTSD. And um, so the show her working with a Marine and Ricochet alerts to their anxiety or pain or triggers and that helps the person kind of go deeper inside to heal more from whatever their trauma was so it's pretty powerful and we have a program called ways of empowerment where we bring those veterans with ptsd together with the kids with special needs and the veterans are kind of mentors to the children and help them in the water and um, we'll play games on the beach and so forth. So it's the um, service members and veterans actually have an opportunity to give back to the community. Um, once they are separated from the military, they often feel like they no longer have purpose because they've lived a life of service, but now they're retired. So we give them that opportunity to be of service again. And the children get a a kind of a military hero for the day. And the um, veteran is able to focus on something outside of themselves. And we find that helping other people really helps them heal. So it's another amazing program that has pretty um, nice results. Yes. um, people not, you know, it's all inclusive. So siblings are invited and parents and um, brothers, whoever wants to attend and everybody gets to participate in the activities. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's lovely. Again, that all inclusive nature of it is, is just lovely, lovely. And I mean, you've talked about the, the Italian water rescue dogs and, I find that so forward-looking and so sort of open-minded because particularly the Newfoundlands are amazing in the water and the way they jump out of the helicopters and and save lives and they're they're very powerful and strong and they they can pull boats through the water. And, I mean, do you find, because I know there was um, in in the UK, there was um, a Newfoundland whose owner was a lifeguard on a beach in Cornwall and he wanted to get his dog involved in getting that water safety message across to children and, and it was sort of, no, you can't take your dog on the beach and it was all red tape and, and you just think oh you're missing such yeah. an opportunity and do you, I mean do you do you get quite frustrated that the Italians are so forward-looking but it, in some ways our countries aren't in that way yeah I think um, the gentleman who started the water rescue um, jobs in Italy kind of has a mindset like I do we haven't met 
but his daughter was one of the trainers that came out to work with us. So there was a lot of communication between her and her dad while they were here. So I think he is another person who thinks outside the box and had this relationship with his dog and it was more of a partnership and this is what they developed. So I think that there's a lot more that can be done that dogs are capable of so much more than we're even aware. And once you allow the dog to make some decisions and to show you what they can do, that's when it gets so powerful mm. because they, I believe dogs are just these magical beings that are on this earth to teach us and to show us our purpose. But most of the time we don't recognize it. Yes. So a lot of the work Ricochet does with the military, um, a lot of those people are, are very hyper vigilant when they return from the battlefield because they have to be hyper vigilant in that environment. But then they come back home and they're, they're still finding themselves on edge and, and watching everyone and everything and, you know, what's behind them and, you know, not sitting with their back to the door and things like that. And dogs can help them tremendously because dogs are hypervigilant by nature. They see and hear and smell everything, whether or not it's a real obvious behavior that they're displaying, but they are displaying some type of behavior. So if the service member or veteran just pays attention to their dog, they don't have to be as hypervigilant and that takes a lot of stress off of them. Yes. So what I'm always, what I'm my passion at this point is teaching people who own dogs to really listen to what their dog is trying to communicate because it often comes across to us humans as misbehavior. Mm. And it's really not. They're really trying to to communicate with us. And if we just change our mindset a little bit and look at it as, well, what else could the dog be trying to convey besides, you know, licking your face and you don't like your face, but so the dog's misbehaving by licking your face. However, the dogs often lick your face uh, of someone with PTSD to kind of bring them back into the moment if they're very anxious and have all these thoughts in their head. So the, the behavior of dogs is very purposeful. We just have to give them the opportunity to do it. Otherwise, if we're correcting or redirecting what we think is bad behavior, we're missing out on so much. And then at some point, the dog just gives up. Yes. Yeah. And there must be so many frustrated dogs around the world just thinking, I know. You, know, you know, my human's it's, stupid. They don't understand me. Exactly. I, I mean, they just have the most patience of any being, I think, because no matter what, they still love us, even though, you know, they're way ahead of us as far as wisdom. Yes. Yeah, I know. And do you know, one of my bugbears is, um, and in fact, I was having this conversation this week with someone when people say, my dog's stupid. And you go, no, 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 your dog is not stupid. You don't know how to motivate your dog. And they go, no, 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 my dog's stupid. And I, that just really horrifies me. And that you think, you, you really don't understand your dog. Yeah, and I think every dog comes to Earth with a purpose. Um, like you said at the beginning, it may be just sitting on your lap and comforting you or being your friend. 
or it may be a dog that saves lives every day going and doing avalanche rescue or something. So it's all different Mm -hmm. and they all have their idiosyncrasies and, um, but you know, they all are here for an individual purpose, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And as you say, it's, it's kind of, is there, is the person that's with them brave enough and sort of open enough to say, yep, I'll come along with you. I'll help you do that. Exactly. Yeah. I don't surf. So ricochet choosing to surf um, was way outside my abilities. So it's, it forced me to reach outside myself and ask for help from other people who could help her in the water. So same with Corey. I'm not a swim instructor. I don't know how to teach kids how to swim. But fortunately, we found a swim instructor that um, took the training with her from the Italian trainers. And, you know, it, it works. And I believe everybody comes into your life for a reason anyway. Yeah. So yeah. it's all meant to happen. And, yeah, so it just proves. And I'm not, I have a lot of health issues and such. So I'm not the most physically able and healthy person. But that doesn't mean that I can't still facilitate my dogs and make a difference in the world. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people that are sick or, you know, have had challenges in their life might sit back and kind of not really put themselves out there anymore. But there's a lot that you can still do. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, as you say, if you've, if you've had health issues of your own, it is, you can get sucked into, I can't do that. And sort of, you know, I, and, and you lose a sense of self-worth and then there's lots of emotional issues that, that sort of can beset you. But as you say, your dogs have, have sort of saved you from that, haven't they? They have. Yeah. If I didn't have my dogs, I probably would be in bed most of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's a struggle sometimes. It's not, I don't always have the energy, but it's definitely concentrating on other people other than myself. For the most part, I just kind of push it to the back burner and don't think about it mm-hmm. and just kind of go on with my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, cause you really do. And generally, I mean, there's two, two questions I want to sort of ask here. Generally, how do people react to um, Ricochet and, and Corey? And, and also, she touches lives, um, and I'm, 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 I'm trying to cover a lot here, but she touches lives, and she touched the people at Honda, didn't she? Honda were inspired to give you a car, weren't oh, they? Oh, Honda, yes, 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 yeah. Yeah, Ricochet is like no other dog I've ever known. She is very different and very, people are attracted to her, so they come to her and she'll go to them like she can pick out who needs something mm-hmm. um, and she'll go to them and and there's she's a very much a healing dog like she can help people heal she's very intuitive and um, bonds with people instantly so she has these very deep connections with people whereas Corey she just wants to play mm-hmm. that's her whole personality she likes to engage but she's not a dog that just wants to lay there and be petted and be you know connect with you she rather connect with you to a game of ball or something yeah. so you know all dogs are different but 
there is definitely something about Ricochet that is special. And I believe that it's because, first of all, she came that way, but because I allowed her to be who she is and I've nurtured it and she's practiced the healing part of what she does with the military for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. So I have learned a tremendous amount of how dogs are communicating with us, how they heal. Ricochet is very obvious in her behaviors and I can tell how someone's feeling based on her behavior. And I'll usually ask them a question and they validate it. So it's kind of a a team effort between Mm. Ricochet feeling whatever the person is feeling, showing that in her behavior, me being able to interpret that behavior, and then the service member, a veteran, validating it. So we have learned, or I have learned a tremendous amount of what some of her behaviors actually mean. Um, Like for the IMAX film, I'm going to have to um, interpret for them Mm -hmm. what it is that she is communicating at any given moment. Because most people will misinterpret it. They won't understand it if, if it's not portrayed in the way that only I can portray it. However, the service members usually... After a couple um, sessions with her, they can identify what she's trying to say as well. But just an average onlooker, they don't typically get it. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what I hope to teach people somewhere down the line is to you know how to read what your dog is trying to say. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, because it's all about how can I get my dog to understand me, but we need to focus a bit more on how can I understand my dog? And once you start to to read them, it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing, yes. It is amazing. Like, they just, you know, I teach my dogs to show me. So if they have something that they want or there's somebody outside or the other day there was a bunny in the next door yard and Corey came and got me and I'll say, show me, and then they'll take me to whatever. Um, So she was trying to show me the bunny. Uh, Ricochet used to do that as well because she wanted me to call the kitty cats to come (laughs) outside just so she could see them. But, I mean, it's definitely, they communicate with you. Yes, Um, In some way, you know, and there's a lot of dogs that alert to things like seizures and such. So... like I've said before I believe every dog has the capacity to do it Mm, mm. but and unfortunately as you say they don't all get the chance to express that ability we're not going to be able to sort of cover everything that that you and and, uh, Ricochet and Corey do but is there anything else that you'd really like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet Mm, I don't think so I mean I just redid Ricochet's website because it was all about surfing before, and now I've included quite a bit about the healing power of dogs, how to interpret what your dog is trying to say. I put videos that give um, examples of Ricochet and Corey um, doing certain behaviors and how they could be misinterpreted, but look at what they're actually saying. So I'm really wanting people to go to the website to, to see this took me a lot of time to put it together and I'm hopeful that people 
get something out of it and can start looking at their dog and understanding their dog a little better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what website is that? What's what's the address, Judy? It's um, surfdogricochet.com dot mm-hmm. and it's um, at the top. If you click on healing dog, there'll be another little link you can click on that says the healing power of dogs. And then there's um, a lot of information there as far as empathy and taking responsibility and intuition, mirroring all those type things that dogs do. Mm-hmm. Well, the the best of it. I mean, do, do you know what? The, I mean, I, yes, you've got the the film coming out next next year, and that's obviously really exciting. What else is on the horizon for you? Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing. We've got yes. a few other. Um, like we're doing some filming in a couple of weeks for the Smithsonian Channel. Hmm. Um, and I mean, obviously, this summer we've got a lot of surfing. We're I think August nineteenth will be the tenth year since Ricochet jumped on a surfboard with um, the 14-year-old boy, Patrick. So we're kind of having an anniversary get-together with everyone for that, where we'll surf and play on the beach and such. Um, and, yeah, just working with kids all all summer. Yeah. Excellent. That, what, what could be better than that? I mean, you, you touch so many lives in a positive way, and it's lovely. And, you know, the best of luck to you and Ricochet and Corey. Thank you. Well, thank you for letting us tell our story and hopefully we can help other people through this and through the website. Judy and her dogs make the world a better place and the heartwarming videos of Ricochet and Corey interacting with people, some of them with severe disabilities, are incredibly moving. If you need your faith in goodness, kindness and selflessness restored or renewed, have a watch. You can find the links Judy mentioned on the Dogcast Radio site, including her first interview with us back in episode 118. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Dogs have 18 muscles controlling their ears. Cats have 32 and humans have only 6. And now, it's time for the Dogcast Radio News, read by Julie and Jenny. Climate change is worrying for us all, but for one group of dogs it's threatening their very existence. Sled dogs have been part of everyday life in Greenland for thousands of years. They were in fact essential to the Inuit's ability to thrive in the Arctic, allowing them to travel and hunt in the frigid conditions. Now though, many factors are combining to make the future for the breed bleak. Summers are getting longer, winters are getting shorter, the ice is retreating, meaning that there isn't need for their services, so fewer are being bred. As if that wasn't bad enough, outbreaks of distemper and parvovirus are killing off vast numbers of the dogs. The loss of the sled dog as a breed is not only very sad, it could have significant cultural and ecological implications for the Inuit people themselves. Let's hope that science can help. With the sled dogs or with global change? Both. Science is wonderful, but of course, it's only as good as the use we put it to. And there's a worrying new trend in the use of dog DNA tests. Apparently, dog owners, and in some cases veterinarians, are basing important decisions on what a test of the animal's DNA reveals about their genes. For example, when a dog presents with symptoms such as having trouble walking and controlling toileting, there are a number of conditions that could be responsible, and the owner of such a dog might want to wait and see how things develop. 
However, if the owner bought and used a DNA test which revealed the dog had a genetic predisposition to a serious illness resembling motor neuron disease in people, for example, they might choose to have the dog euthanized to spare the inevitable deterioration and undignified death. Whatever your opinion of such a course of action, the worry is that current DNA tests are not sophisticated or regulated enough to be relied on. When you couple this with the fact that the studies on which DNA tests depend are often too small-scale or inaccurate to be of real use, you begin to see that it's possible that the poor dog in question might never have actually developed such a serious condition, but lived comfortably with a lesser condition and would have been served better by a wait-and-see scenario than any other. It's so sad that people trying to do the best for their dog might be getting it very wrong. It is. And that's why we're highlighting this news to listeners. Forewarned is forearmed. On to another controversial story now, as we turn to the case of Derek Beale and his guide dog Paddy in Kent, UK. Derek's rare genetic disorder means he is blind and hard of hearing and relies on Paddy to help him even leave his house. However, there's a problem and guide dogs for the blind recently removed Paddy from Derek's home, at this point temporarily. Derek is saying it's because of Paddy's weight, which he admits is slightly high, but not so bad it stops Paddy doing his job, according to Derek. The charity won't comment because of client confidentiality, other than to confirm that the dog has been removed. So, here's the ethical conundrum. Should Paddy be taken away from a home where he is becoming more overweight, or should Derek's reliance on an assistance dog outweigh other concerns? And how overweight is too overweight? Don't look at me when you say that. I wasn't. You're paranoid. <laughs> On to another doggy dilemma now. What would you do if you were walking down the street and looked up to see a dog in danger of falling? Well, Zhuao Augusto was faced with exactly that situation when he arrived at his apartment building in Brazil. Nine floors up from where he stood, Shih Tzu Mel teetered on the edge of a balcony onto which she'd escaped. As quick-thinking Zhuao called to the building's caretaker to fetch a sheet to catch the dog, Mel fell. Undaunted, Zhuao stepped forward, breaking Mel's fall with his own body. Zhuao was knocked to the floor, Mel ran off, and both emerged unscathed from Mel's 100-foot fall. Thank goodness Mel wasn't a great Dane. But dogs don't need heights to get into trouble. They can find more than enough danger just out for their daily walk. Husky Malamute cross Malleus was out for a walk in the woods with owner Olivia Broadfield in Leicester in the UK when he gleefully picked something up. Olivia realised that Malleus had a pair of knickers in his mouth, but before she could take them off him, to her horror, he swallowed them. She called her veterinarian and followed their advice, took Malleus to them quickly, and they made him vomit. What Malleus vomited up was a thong, and while this is straight from sitcom land, it could have had serious repercussions for Malleus had Olivia not noticed he had swallowed the underwear. Within two days, he could have been in agony and in need of extensive surgery. So the advice to dog owners is, if you spot your dog eating something that they shouldn't, it's always worth a quick phone call to your vet to find out what you should do. And the advice to the general public is keep your pants on. Or at least, don't discard them in public places. On now to something it's also advisable for the general public to do in private, peeing. A new study has revealed that not only do dogs use urine to mark their territory, they aim to leave their mark as high as possible to send a message to other dogs that they are big. And the smaller the dog is, the higher it tries to get its urine marker to fool other dogs into thinking they're bigger than they really are. In fact, and we're back in sitcom territory here, some small males were observed making such an effort to urinate as high as possible that they almost fell over. This may seem comical, or even odd to us, 
but other species such as pandas and mongooses have been seen adopting the same approach, and scientists compare peeing high up to leaving a text message to avoid a potentially dangerous face-to-face -face meeting with other males. Alternative theories are that dogs are trying to cover up any rival dog's pee markings with their own, like painting over someone else's graffiti, and it may be that small dogs are just more agile and manoeuvrable so that they get their pee higher in proportion to their size. So, if you have a small dog, should you be lifting him up to help him get his pee as high as possible? Surprisingly, the study doesn't cover this, but my instinct is no. Too far into sitcom land. Way too far. That's all from the Dogcast Radio News this time. See you later. When domestic dogs are off the lead and the Earth's magnetic field is calm, they prefer to urinate and defecate with their bodies aligned on a north-south axis. Five veterinary nurses and one vet from Scarsdale Vets in Derby teamed up with the charity Help the Street Animals of Morocco and spent two weeks volunteering in Essaouira, a port city on the west coast of Morocco, providing free veterinary care for the city's street dogs and cats. Here are clinical nursing manager Victoria Walker and veterinary nurse and trustee of Help the Street Animals of Morocco, Keely Hutchinson from Scarsdale, talking to me about their recent trip. So we were there as part of a, a charity called Help the Street Animals of Morocco, who have been running since 2006, doing charitable work with the street animals, uh, particularly in Essaouira. So the project's aim is to do trap, neuter and release of the street cats. And we also do um, preventative medication with the street animals, such as flea and worm treatment as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So how, how, did, how did you get into this? Um, so for me, the reason why I actually became a registered veterinary nurse is because I wanted to be able to help charities more in a professional manner. And uh, through a friend of mine who knew Claire, who's the founder of the charity, uh, put me in touch with Claire and Rob. And I went out on my first trip. And this was my sixth year volunteering with the charity. Oh, wow. And then I started working at Pride uh, five years ago and managed to rope in Victoria and Deb. <laughs> <laughs> come along on the following trips. So yes, so Keely was looking for a nurse and a vet to go one year, three years ago. So she asked myself and one of our colleagues, Deb, if we would go out there. I was really interested in working with animals on a charitable basis where they normally wouldn't have access to veterinary care. Mm. So it seemed perfect when Keely asked if we wanted to go. So yeah, this was my third trip. Excellent. We'll come back to later on sort of what it's like on a personal level for you. But so you said the aim is to give the street animals a healthier, happier life and sort of perhaps some neutering and things. But what does that actually mean sort of in, in practical terms? What did you do while you were out there? So what we do specifically in relation to the dogs is um, well primarily is we offer education to the local community rabies is a, a very real threat over in Morocco mm. um, so a lot of people are, are 
quite understandably a bit anxious around the dogs. So we talked to the community, including the local children. We've, we've been into schools to educate the children about dog behaviour and, and what to do if they felt that a dog possibly had rabies. Also, some of these dogs, that you know, they do live on the streets, but they are part of the community. And, uh, and a, a lot of the locals actually very much love having the dogs around. And they'll take, like, a, a group of the, the locals will actually take care of, like, a certain dog that lives on their street. So if they have any concerns in relation to any individual animal, then they'll come to us. We can offer um, health checks and also do, like, preventative treatments such as flea and worm treatment. Um, the local government have also um, bought in a scheme that if you have a dog out there, you can take them to the, the local veterinary office and they will provide free rabies vaccinations. Mm. So we, as a charity, have become, um, well, we, we, we spread that information out to the community and um, so they are, aware, they are aware of that scheme. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds, it sounds as if there's sort of a very different cultural attitude to, towards street dogs. I mean, over here, we kind of, our attitude would be, okay, we need to, to get them off the street and we need to find them owners, you know, to, to rehome them. But it seems like sort of that's... That's not completely the aim in, in Morocco then, is that right? Absolutely. So yeah. obviously they're, they're not stray dogs. And like yeah. here, if there were animals wandering the streets, we would assume that they belong to somebody and that they've, they've strayed. Whereas there, the, the street is their home. That's all that they've known. They were born and, and raised on the street. So the aim of our charity is to provide a stable and healthy population of street animals in Morocco. So again, in, in relation to like, the cats, we do a, a neutering scheme where we will go, we'll trap the cats, we, we collect them, take them into the clinic for neutering. And with the dogs, obviously, the government are providing that vaccination scheme. And if we can do the preventative treatment as well and kind of do anything that they, that they need whilst they're out there, such as they have skin issues, some of them will have mange, some of them, it's a very busy street can get hit by cars so we provide emergency care to them and can take them to the local vet for him to do uh, any treatment that is necessary mm. and and again it sounds you know sort of that that attitude amongst the locals because you might think that all the locals would be sort of very worried and, and hostile towards the, the the street dogs and street animals but it sounds as if they, they sort of adopt them and i guess on an individual level you know, I can quite see how if, if there is an animal around you know, n- near your house that you kind of, you know, it happens a lot with cats, doesn't it, where you sort of say, oh, you know, come in here and eat for a bit and, and then they gradually stay with you. But these animals stay independent, essentially, don't they? Yes, they do. So they tend to live in areas, so they get used to the local people who are living around there. But they are very much street animals. You know, and that's why our aim is to keep them on the street. We don't want to encourage people to take them into their homes because that's not the lifestyle of the animals over there. But, yes, the local communities really embrace the animals who are living on the street. And, you know, if they're concerned about something, they will come and find us when we're out and about doing our treatments and also like providing them with education leaflets and things they'll come and find us if they need to ask about anything yeah yeah so i guess you're made very very welcome aren't you yeah the community really embraced the work we do it's really nice when you go back on the next trip and you see people who you've 
seen the year before and stuff, they come and talk to you. They show you maybe if you've treated one of the animals, they'll take you to see them to see how well they're doing. And, yeah, we're just really lucky with how the community embrace us. And that's so important that the community do support the work we do out there. And I think because the charity isn't invasive, we're not going and removing animals from the area. What we're doing is helping the animals living in that area to continue to live the way they are. I think that's why the community embraces the work so much. Yes, yes, I guess because you're not going over there and wagging the finger and saying, now look here, you really should be taking these animals into your homes. But you're you're embracing their attitude aren't you yeah 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 so the animals that none of them have owners but the the sort of the ones who sort of don't haven't been adopted by their actual local very local community how do you get access to them so if somebody says obviously there's ones that sort of people point out to you do you go out and spot other other ones in in need and how then when you know there's a need how do you actually get the access to them without an owner to come in and say oh my dog's got this problem so, like we said before, that they're, they're kind of in the same areas on a daily basis. The dogs will have their own routine. Some dogs will stay down in the harbour, whereas the other dogs will be at the other end of the Medina. And generally, even those dogs that people haven't taken um, a specific guardianship over, people still do, they, they know about them, you know, they know the dogs that live in their area um, and they will come and find us and, and take us to the dogs that require any treatment but also because our team spends the whole day kind of surveying the Medina, walking around, giving treatments to sick cats in the area, we always come across the dogs and we'll see any animals that require any further treatment whilst we're out and about. And generally, you know, we can coax them with food or, or just love and affection because the dogs, much like over here, you know, some dogs, of course, like dogs over here, don't always want people to, to give them fuss or a stroke or anything. But, but I think dogs generally do enjoy company, do enjoy human company, and they will come over if you show them uh, like a bit of a fuss, I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it is amazing how minimal an exposure to people does seem to, with the right people, endear dogs to us. Obviously, there are communities where um, I'm not talking about Morocco, but uh, you know there are communities where you know wild dogs or, or street dogs aren't as as welcome, and that's a different experience for the for the dog, isn't it? But that's lovely that actually the majority of them seem friendly to to, to humans because that's what I was going to ask if they don't you know if they don't have owners they don't have that basis that that home basis that all the dogs we meet basically over here do you know what's their attitude to you the dog's attitude I kind of I think from when we're walking around in the Medina and at the harbour I think they're so used to people being around and because the locals in the community treat the animals very well and you know do welcome them sharing the street you know the home with the Medina area with them I think the animals generally have quite a good rapport with humans so I think that helps in making them more welcoming to interacting Mm. with us because invariably they're treated nicely by everybody in the area yeah yeah, that's that's lovely to hear, actually. What what treatments did you do on this trip? And also, where were the treatments done? You know, give us an idea. Are you actually sort of 
squatting down on the street or kneeling down on the street beside these animals, treating them and, and that's it? Or do you have to take any of them into a, a centre anywhere? So we do, yeah. So we have um, two teams of volunteers. One volunteer team is on the street doing exactly what you said. We're walking around, doing treatments, fleeing and worming. A, a lot of the cats, they have cat flu, so we do supportive management with them. If they've got any kind of skin issues or fractures that need further assistance, then the street team then will take those animals into the clinic to Adnan, who's the local vet out there whose clinic we use. If we need to um, have any further medical assistance that we can't do on the street, then we will take the patients into Dr. Adnan's clinic, uh, where our other team of volunteers are there also. So we have one of our vets and a team of nurses that um, support Adnan with his work with the patients of other street animals that we take in. And we we do like a variety of of different procedures on the animals. So we do neutering, um, we sometimes have to do limb amputations, we do ear tip removals on on some of the the patients that get, because of the sun, Mm. they can get skin on their ears um, and or like precancerous cells so what we'll do is we'll we'll take those cells away so some of the, the tissue on the ear to prevent them obviously getting um, melanoma yeah skin cancer and sometimes with the with the cats that get cat flu they get such severe ulcers in their eyes and their ulcers are, are really painful and the, the nicest thing you can do when they've become so severe is to actually um, remove the eye and that's an instant release to the to the patient. Mm-hmm. So when you've taken an animal in what happens to them after treatment you know they may have to stay with you to recover a little while but what happens to them afterwards? So when we've got an animal in the clinic, then we obviously keep them with us until they're recovered. With the cats, we're normally able, with the male cats, to just have them in for the day and then they're awake by late afternoon. Um, And with the female cats, we tend to keep them overnight to make sure that everything's fine. But the street team come and collect them and each of the animals has basically been labelled with the specific area they were captured in. Mm. So then return them to the exact spot where they were collected and they're re-released out into their, effectively their home area they're from and invariably they go leaping out of the basket all excited to be away from being contained (laughs) And they just go off and sometimes, you know, when I was releasing one on the last trip, we took him and we released him and he just ran straight over to the shop where he knows that somebody feeds him and they were ready for him to be back there. So, yeah, they just go back to where they come from. And as we've said, they're so used to living around people that, Yes, we've done something different by capturing them and keeping them contained during their time with us in the clinic. But as soon as they're released, they're just back to normal quite happily. Just as we're talking, as you're describing that, I'm I'm picturing a dog or cat sort of going back with, you know, the cone of shame, the cone to stop them getting to any (laughs) stitches. Do you have to, I mean, seriously, do you have to do anything like that? And if you do, who 
takes over sort of and says, yeah, well, because I'm thinking when, I, when our dogs have had operations, we've had to do that at times to, and, and a cat who hated it. But who takes over saying, yeah, I'll look after the, the cone on this dog or do you just have to trust that they're sensible enough that they don't need a cone? On our last trip, we did have one little cat where we removed its ear tips because it had cancerous cells. So in that instance, because at the start of it, he did find it quite itchy having little stitches in his ear, we had to apply a cone onto him. And what we did on that instance was we kept him in the clinic with us for the first 48 hours until that discomfort subsided he wasn't in pain it was just that he found it quite strange having stitches in his ear Um, and basically once he was able to be without the collar then he was able to be released back where we collected him from obviously our concern is we can't really send animals back out onto the street with things like that in case they got caught up and injured because of it but like with the cats that we neuter things, we make sure that they have dissolvable sutures. They're all buried under the skin, so there's nothing for them to pull on or chew at. So we don't tend to, well, certainly I've had no problem on any of our trips mm. where we've had them pestering at wounds or anything. Mm. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Because that just as we were talking, that sort of occurred to me. Like, oh gosh, <laughs> our dogs. And, and I said, our, our cat who hated it, he sort of went straight away. Went into that. I'm going to walk backwards with this cone on because I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you talked about the fa- the founder of the the charity. How did it come about? What how why was it founded? Um, so Claire and Rob, who are the, the co-founders, went to Estuera on holiday and spent their entire trip treating uh, kittens on the street. Uh, they then took one very sick kitten into um, into Adnan's veterinary clinic um, and then developed a friendship from there. Um, towards the end of the trip, they already decided that they had to do something about it. There were such large volumes of animals on the street living in such a small proximity that um, disease obviously is, is a huge risk. So um, when you have a large number of animals in that small area, the diseases are passed easily particularly cat flu within the cat population um, by sneezing and then it spreads the virus into the neighbor neighboring cat and then so on and so forth um, and so they went back so it was officially founded in 2006 and then they returned with a, a, a group of volunteer vet and nurses and animal handlers and they go every year now twice twice a year for two weeks each trip and and are Claire and Rob um, veterinary staff themselves yeah, Claire's a registered veterinary nurse. Um, Rob is not, mm-hmm. um, but he's had years of experience working within animal rescue uh, in a charitable level. So um, he's got an awful lot of experience from a handling point of view, um, first aid, triage. Um, so combined, they're a pretty amazing team, to be fair. Yes, they send it. They are, yeah. Yeah. I, I really, really admire people who see a need you know because lots of us go on holiday and see you know animals that that are in need of help and on, on various levels but 
to actually go, do you know what? I'm going to do something about that. And then yeah. get other people involved and then set a charity up. I mean, that's, that's a huge amount. That's a big commitment, isn't it? Uh, and now the charity is a registered charity as well. So um, there's a lot of uh, loopholes that you have to jump through to, mm-hmm. to make it registered. So to become more of a professional body, really. But yeah, we were we were having exactly the same conversation before you called, um, saying that you know how many people go on holiday each year, and that we have hotels where there's a whole load of cats hanging around or street animals, and and your heart breaks a little bit for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you finish your holiday and you go home and nothing else happens of it. So I do think it takes a real special person to to see an issue, to come up with a solution and actually carry that out. And uh, and actually, I, I'm very thankful to Rob and Claire that they, they, they took that initiative and decided to start something so amazing because in the six years that I've been volunteering, I have seen a huge, huge difference in the, the health of the street animals. We've managed to treat 647 animals this trip and yeah so that's a combination of kind of surgical procedures and and preventative treatment like flea and worm are on the street as well and for me I feel personally that the reason why we were able to treat so many animals in this particular trip is that actually they were generally a lot healthier so we didn't have to spend time every day going back to previous patients that needed continued treatment we were able to just do flea and worm make sure ears were clean um, and move on to the next animal um, so yeah and you see more and more animals on the street that you have neutered so we are spreading out further and further afield to, to, to neuter more and more animals which is perfect which is exactly the aim of the charity yeah yeah well congratulations it sounds really brilliant What's it like? Tell me what it's like sort of on a personal level to go out there. Sort of what, what are conditions like for you? And also, what does it mean to you emotionally? Because I, I imagine it's sort of a, quite a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, so for me, going out there, um, I work primarily in the clinic. So mm. I'm lucky in a way because we primarily see the animals that need neutering as opposed to street team where they do sometimes see some of the poorlier ones. We're we're really lucky. We can operate in exactly the same way as we would over here. We have an autoclave, so we've got sterile equipment, vets wear sterile gloves, we wear scrubs, so everything's very similar to how it is here. I think on a emotional level though it's quite challenging because you get very attached to some of the patients we have that need to stay in the clinic we had for me there's been a couple of cats over my trips where I've got super attached and then you have to leave them which is really lovely because they're being re-released but is really sad because you've got used to having them there in the clinic with you I think for me there's so many different animal charities around but what really stood out to me about Help the Street Animals was the fact that without us going over there there's hundreds of animals who would never have access to any veterinary care and to be able to go out there and help even if we're just fleeing and worming them, cleaning their ears and stuff, to be able to help them in that way is just so amazing to have that opportunity 
And I think the real key thing is the community as well and how the locals really embrace the work we're doing with the animals and being able to educate them as well and you go back on your next trip and you see them and you know you see people going through Medina on their little mopeds or in cars going a bit slower because we've spoken to them about how they ideally shouldn't speed because they can hurt the animals and stuff it's just it's just a real mix but I go out once a year and it's just an amazing feeling it really is just so so rewarding to see the difference with the animals and the difference in the education we've done with the community. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been um, quite clear to see with the rest of our colleagues as well how much we enjoy our trips because since um, Vic and Deb came out on their first trip, we've now had um, quite a few other staff members that also come out volunteering with us. So there's quite a little group uh, of people from Pride that are giving their time freely to help the, the charity and uh, and each one of them is returning again next year. Um, so I think that speaks volumes for itself. Yes, yeah. Oh, that that's lovely that it's such a... A positive experience, you know, overall, although, as we, as you've said, it's sort of, it's, there's times I imagine when you sort of have a good cry. Um, but it's lovely that it's, it's so rewarding that people are going back. And it's lovely that in, that in people's hearts, they want to go back so much. That's lovely. Yeah, it's really nice. I think it's a real sense of camaraderie as well when we're there. We all share um, the, the Riyadh together. So it's like a, a big house in the middle of the Medina. So even though the, the volunteers are split into two teams, so the street team and the clinic team, of an evening we all come together and share our stories of, of what's happened throughout the day. Um, and and I think that is really, really important because it can be quite emotional. Like Vic said, you know, we get we do get attached, of course, to the animals that are there. Um, and we see we work so very hard the hours are really really long and it can be quite emotional and, and tiring at times um, but just so worth all of the the, the effort yeah 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 oh that, well you know thank you for going out there on behalf of the animals and things but you know thank you for going out there and, and it's it's lovely to talk to people who who give so freely that's it and it's and it comes from such a good place and that, that even you you chose your job because you wanted to sort of have that expertise to offer that's it's it's lovely is there anything you want to say about um help the street animals or your trip or anything that we haven't covered yet uh, not really. I mean, I guess with any kind of charity, the, the important thing for me to get out there is that, of course, it's completely um, funded by kind donations from the general public. So we, as volunteers, fund our own our own trips. So we ensure, you know, we, we pay for our flights and we, we pay for the accommodation and, and everything like that. So it means that all of the money that is donated to the charity goes directly to helping the street animals. Um, and I think with because we're a smaller charity, I think with some larger charities, sometimes donations get a bit lost um, in admin and things like that. But for us, it's such a small charity that really and truly every penny that's donated makes such a huge difference to the work that we can do whilst we're there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, very, very directly, isn't it? Your money goes very directly to, yeah. 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 Where can people find out more online about the charity? 
We have a Facebook page, Help the Street Animals of Morocco, or it's abbreviated to HSAM. Um, and we also have a website, which is helpthestreetanimalsofmorocco.org. And there's lots of information on there. Um, we also have uh, a newsletter that we, we put out so people can... Um, it kind of has stuff about meeting the team, so meeting the volunteers which go out there. There's information on what people can do if they're over there and they find an animal that requires help. We include stories about different animals that we've treated whilst we've been over there, all about how the charity started. There's just all sorts mm. on there. We have both those links on the Dogcast Radio site. And I wish the charity and the street animals of Morocco the very best of luck. That was fascinating, wasn't it? Wonderful to hear about people helping animals so directly, so consistently and with such commitment. Thank you to Victoria and Keeley for talking to me. In addition to being aware of the Earth's magnetic field, Scientists speculate that dogs may actually be able to see it. Mischief has some toys. A few toys. Many. Several. A box. A large box full. They don't all fit in the box. In fact, the floor is constantly strewn with trip hazards in the form of dog toys. It's a health and safety nightmare. But the point is, she has toys and she enjoys them. None of them are very expensive, but when we see something she'd like, especially if it's a bargain, we get it for her. This is partly because she's a very bright little dog who benefits from enrichment, and partly because in the wake of Buddy's death we've perhaps been more indulgent than usual. No bad thing if done in the right way, in my opinion. And since this is my editorial, that's the opinion you're getting. Anyway, the point is, Mischief has toys and she likes toys. We started buying toys before we actually had her because, well, they don't go off, do they? And when you're longing for a dog, as Jenny was in those days, all the preparation makes you feel like getting the dog is a reality and it's not too far off. And hey, toys are cute and fun, so why not? One particular toy we bought in readiness for Mischief's arrival is a soft puzzle-type toy, consisting of a small birdhouse in which three small chicks live. The chicks can be put into and taken out of the house. You can see photos of it on the Dogcast Radio site, and it's very cute, and we thought just right for a small dog. Fast forward a few months to when Mischief was actually in residence in the Dogcast Radio house, and we unearthed the toy and proceeded to play with it with her showing her how the chicks could access the house, how they could be pulled out, and throwing the chicks for her to chase. All good fun. All our dogs have enjoyed toys, but Mischief relishes them, and she will actively seek out a particular toy to bring to you to instigate play. She climbs right into the toy box and digs around until she finds what she's after and carries off her trophy. All in all, she's a lively, clever little dog who knows what she wants and how to get it. She's also not afraid to voice her opinions. So, one day when I was sitting on the sofa, I was not particularly surprised to hear a series of sharp, high-pitched barks from the kitchen. But they were followed by a growl, so I raised my head and listened. The growl not only continued, but deepened and intensified. 
I decided I'd better investigate and hurried to the kitchen, where I came across an outraged mischief who was growling and glaring at the birdhouse with the three chicks. As I watched, she approached it, tried to get her teeth on a cheek, grasped it and pulled it, but the whole house moved and the chick stayed inside it, and mischief resumed growling menacingly at it. I laughed. But Jenny and I spent some time showing mischief how to get hold of the chicks and pull them out. It turned out that the little doors allow fingers to pull or push a chick through just fine, but it's way too tricky when attempted with teeth and paws. We substituted some other small toys which fit through the doors more easily, and mischief is happy. But spare a thought for three small homeless chicks who, thanks to mischief, may consider themselves well and truly told off. And that's about all for today. So until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Mum, how do you stop a dog barking in your front yard? Well, Jenny, you could teach a quiet command by perhaps waiting until the dog is quiet and then rewarding the behaviour. Put him in your backyard. No, no, Jen, because then you've just moved the problem from the... It's a joke. It's not a joke, Jenny. It's very serious. You could get in trouble. You could be prosecuted for noise pollution. Oh, forget it.